Welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast. I'm producer Ruth Brown. On Wednesday morning, Governor Brad Little met virtually with members of the Idaho Press Club. He answered questions from the press, ranging from coronavirus issues to election laws to pending legislation. The Idaho Reports crew included the audio from that meeting. Listen in now. Welcome to the Idaho Press Club's annual Breakfast with the Governor. Uh, if you've been with us uh, before, unfortunately, we weren't able to host this in person uh, this year. We are certainly hoping to next year. Um, as in years past, we'll let Governor Little take a couple minutes at the top to kind of give his thoughts on the legislative session, what's happening in Idaho right now. Uh, this is an on-the-record conversation. I had a couple of you message me asking if you could record. Yes, uh, yeah, Nicole and Joe, uh, please, by all means. Uh, I'll also be recording on my end uh, just so that I can send uh, that recording to everyone. Recording in progress. And I just started it. So if you need a backup, I've got a backup, um, but feel free to do it on your own too. Uh, so like I said, this is an on-the-record conversation. Governor Little will be taking questions after his uh, introduction. Uh, so send me a message. I'll be moderating. I'll kind of put you in the queue and call on you. Uh, question and a follow-up, and then I'll move on to uh, whoever might, uh, you know, need to be next in, in queue. Uh, so with that, I guess, Governor Little, go ahead. Well, thanks, James. Uh, now, I trust that none of you are watching JFAC on your other screen. Uh, I know that could possibly be the case, and uh, it, it's, good to, it's good to join you. Uh, I had a little bit of virtual bacon and virtual eggs this morning to start the day off, uh, but there was no virtual smell of bacon in the room uh, where there usually is when we have this event. So uh, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, we're moving along through the legislature. I'm excited to, well, mostly excited to hear your questions and uh, we'll get started. So I'm ready, James. All right. Uh, I have not gotten any questions. Anything? How are we to submit our questions? Oh, just send me uh, send me a message and or raise your hand either way, because uh, it looks like Melissa has her hand up. Like <laughs> speaker. Um, Thank you. Go ahead, Melissa. Okay. All right. Thank you. Good morning, Governor. Uh, thanks for doing this. Um, I wanted to ask about um, potentially ending the emergency declaration, um, which is something that the legislature has expressed interest in repeatedly. Um, if that happens, what might be the consequences from Idaho? Is there any funding um, that the state is still taking advantage of or any other resources that might affect um, Idaho's ability to combat the um, the COVID infections in the state? Well, I'm always looking, uh, and in fact, you know, we've got other emergencies. We've still got some emergencies open on fire is, is usually the case because the, uh, you know, most, I, I would advocate that the emergency's over, but a lot of the funding and whether it's, uh, guard I've got out at the prison to help with the uh, 
labor shortage or all the contractors we have in hospitals. Right now we've got over 500 of them in hospitals. Um, but for the most part, uh, we have noticed up the people that are recipients of that, that uh, we're, we're very inclined to, uh, to get out of the emergency. We're just uh, having conversations with all the people that are now getting assistance through either FEMA or the National Guard about what the ramifications and how we can, uh, with the least amount of turmoil, I get out of the emergency order because I want to get out of the emergency order. Just as a follow-up, can, um, can you give us an idea of what that timeline might be or is it still too early to know? We're, I had two meetings yesterday on it. We're working on it, but uh, uh, it will be uh, the administration just to, just extended it from the end of March, I think to June, uh, but we're, we're inclined to get out of it. And, and most people that are, are beneficiaries of it have kind of been noticed up that, that that was our inclination, but we're, we don't want to be too disruptive, but we want to get out of the emergency order. Thank you. All right, next up, uh, Betsy Russell, Idaho Press. Thanks. Um, Governor, yesterday you sent out a, a tweet condemning racism and hatred. Can you tell us why you did that and what that was about? For the most part, because we're getting a lot of inquiries. I, that was, I, I, I find it a little ironic that I have to tweet out that uh, we need to condemn that after I've, I've done two proclamations, I think, in the last month. Uh, one of them on on the uh, anniversary of the order to intern uh, the Japanese on the in the United States, and and the other one where we always commemorate the Holocaust. So uh, I I I did it basically in response to a lot of inquiries we were getting. And Governor, was it in reference to the Lieutenant Governor's addressing that recent conference in Florida? It was just because of the, the inquiries we're getting. But weren't those inquiries about Lieutenant Governor McGee? There, there might have been some connection. Would you like to expand on that a bit? No, I, I, I'm, I'm here talking about uh, our leading Idaho initiative and what's taking place in the legislature. So how many inquiries did you receive? Or what, did you receive a ton of them? Well, I don't know. It depends upon whether it's a metric ton or a but several. <laughs> All right, next up, uh, Kelsey Mosley-Morris, uh, Idaho Capital Sun. Morning, Governor. Morning. Um, given that the candidate filing period is open and you're running campaign ads and have a campaign manager, I think a lot of people are just wondering uh, what's holding you back from an official announcement? Is it the legislative session? Is it something strategic? Um, just curious about that. Probably D, all of the above. Uh, um, we're... That's again. It's uh, that's a political question. I'm here to talk about official state business. All right, uh, Kristen McPeak, CBS Two. Hi, Governor Little. Um, right now, there's legislation in talks um, to interrupt Idaho's ties with Russia. Right now, um, in terms of economics, um, if this reaches your desk, would you support it? Well, it depends on what it looks like, but we. Uh, Aside from any legislation, uh, I know the Percy board and the, and the chief investment officers of Percy are looking at their investments. I, I, I'm not even 
I don't think uh, that uh, the Endowment Fund Investment Board, which has a pretty extensive investment portfolio, I don't believe they do because we see that uh, monthly at the land board. Uh, but you know, we don't know every little part of it. Uh, is your? I think you're probably aware uh, there were two uh, Russian vodkas that we took out of the liquor store. So no, we're we're aware of the issue and what we need to do, but uh, I I don't know what the what the legislation will look like, but uh, the the Percy the board's looking at it right now. Thank you. Great. Uh, next up, Keith Riddler, Associated Press. Hi, uh, Governor. Good morning. I just had a question. There's a, there's a bill to remove the Attorney General from the Idaho Constitution. Constitutional Defense Council. Do you have any thoughts about that? I I haven't seen it. I I did. I, I heard just about as much as what you just told me, uh, and that's all I know about it. I don't. Is there is there a replacement in that bill, or they're just going to have one less person on the council? Um, I think they're just going to take one person off. They just want to take the Attorney General off. I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, like, uh, Megan Blanksmith said they wanted to even make it an odd number so there wouldn't be a tie vote. Um, but she has other legislation um, that that involving the Attorney General as well. So I just wonder if you know moving the number from four down to three. If if you had thoughts about that, considering that's you know, kind of a significant council. With I, I I'll I'll look I'll look the bill up, but I have I all I've done is heard about it. So. Okay, thank you. Okay, next up, uh, Nicole Camarda, Channel Six. Good morning. Um, I just have a question about the bill that actually comes from Washington lawmakers. Um, I'm curious if you have had any more talk with the governor of Washington regarding this bill and kind of where it is in the process. I know that it's been tensions are high with this bill, but if there's been any further conversation regarding it. Well, we we sent a letter. Uh, the attorney general and I sent a letter. Uh, and I, I I made a statement that I thought it was I, I might have been the bill signing or somebody someplace where somebody asked me about it and I said boy it, that looks pretty unconstitutional to me and if we're not successful in in requesting and uh, demanding that it not happen uh, we would we would sure be in the queue to litigate on it so but I I understand it that it's had the legs knocked out from under it at the Washington legislature. All righty, uh, Joe Paris, KTVB. Uh, good morning, Governor. I'm curious, uh, about two months after your State of the State address, um, how would you evaluate the progress and goals that you laid out on your roadmap? Do you think you're on track with your plan or do you think the legislature has kind of taken steps away from it? Well, actually, I, uh, my, I talk about my trifecta, which is uh, significant investments and improvements in education, uh, obviously roads, uh, unmet maintenance need in our roads, and, and the largest ever tax cut. And all three of those are, are moving the, the tax cuts law already, uh, and the other two uh, we've already got the teacher insurance authorizing language, 
Uh, we also, yesterday I signed the authorizing bill for the Strong Students Program. Uh, I, I believe, uh, and I talked to several members uh, of the Education Committee last night, and uh, those are all progressing. So uh, my three, you know, real big agenda items are all are are all doing well, and it's only the second of March, so that's not bad. Next up, uh, Bill Spence, Lewiston Tribune. Thanks, James. Uh, thank you for doing this, Governor. Um, you just mentioned the uh, largest ever tax cut. Uh, I, I'm curious, given the amount of uh, public comment and uh, the emails that uh, legislators are getting from constituents, I'm wondering whether you, you look back on that and think maybe it was actually too early, that maybe you should have focused on property tax relief or maybe grocery tax relief as opposed to income tax relief? Well, I you know last year, uh, one of the tax bills was the last bill passed. Uh, that's not my preference. Uh, I, I, did, I didn't have a, any kind of an issue with the timeliness of it. Um, we'll see, we're, we're three or four days away from uh, knowing what our February receipts were, but I, I cautioned everyone in my, economic forecasting teams cautioned everyone that we knew that the December and January revenue numbers were artificially higher because of both the salt tax at the federal level and how we treat capital gains here in Idaho. So uh, when those numbers come out, we'll have a better, we'll have better, better look at what our revenue numbers are gonna be going forward. So, uh, but that'll be, you know, this week sometime or next week, for sure. Do you uh, do you think that there is potentially still room to do significant property tax relief if the legislature decides to go that direction? Well, it depends on whether you just take it out of the general fund or whether you do a tax shift, uh, which is always the case in, in property taxes. Uh, we'll have to see. Uh, there's, and then we're tracking uh, what the expenditure rate is. Uh, my budget was a proposed 8% increase. Uh, there's some indication they're going to spend more than that. That all is part of the, the recipe about how we address what's going to be available. Uh, I was very uh, pleased yesterday that uh, pay off is some of our debt and some of the maintenance is moving along through the appropriation process and and that's a good thing because that that means we're going to have more revenue in the future, which to me, one of the most important parts of it is that we can fund uh, the insurance program that's already law and also uh, the career ladder and the literacy investments. All right. Just a reminder, if you do have a question, we're taking questions from credentialed media. Uh, either raise your hand, type in the chat, send me a message, whatever, and I'll get you in the queue. Um, I'll go ahead and take the next one, uh, Boise State Public Radio, obviously, Governor. Um, since Bill brought up property taxes, I mean, just philosophically, since we haven't seen the bill introduced yet, what do you think about raising the sales tax to cover more general fund money going to locals to try to eliminate property taxes? Well, we've done that uh, 
ever since 1965. Uh, you know, we used to fund all the state government with either sin taxes or property taxes. And then when the prohibition came along, uh, income taxes arrived both in the state and nationally. And uh, ever since then, uh, when property taxes got to a certain level, uh, uh, sales tax, that's what happened in 1965, uh, not only did we lower the corporate rate and the individual rate, we took off the inventory uh, tax. So uh, that shouldn't be a shock to anybody because that's been the uh, progression of, of taxes in the past. And I, but you know, you got to look at the magnitude of it. And then one of the things that people need to be, and I know many of you have, have written about this, is the stability of 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 sales tax versus property tax because property tax is a is a pretty solid stable tax and uh, I, and we'll see what our sales tax does going forward at least based on uh, you know other reporters uh, stories that have come out in the past week or so um, with the figure 7.95%, I mean, number one in the nation, do you think that that would be uh, sort of a deterrent from people moving here if it were to pass? Uh, I, I, it, it all depends. Um, I, you know, one of my big issues with, with property taxes and workforce housing is my overarching goal, as you all know, is for our kids to stay here and Anything we can do to make uh, uh, housing available to our young people that are uh, starting their career, uh, I'm I'm very excited about. All right, next up, uh, Melissa Davlin, Idaho Public Television. I was curious about your relationship with the legislature compared to last year. Uh, just from where I'm sitting, it seems like it is a lot less contentious. Um, you haven't had any press conferences with former governors to veto legislation yet. Um, can you give us a little bit of insight into how those discussions are going and how it is, um, how it compares to last year? Well, the, the, our, our system's built where there's always a, a healthy um, friction between the executive branch and the legislative branch for, for a lot of good reasons. Um, I would say, I, I agree with you that it's, it's uh, but you know, there was a lot of turmoil uh, with uh, people's concerns about COVID last year and uh, that, you know, with our numbers and, and the concern about it, the fact that, you know, people are vaccinated, the fact that we're second fastest state in the nation in recovering uh, from the detrimental effects of, of COVID in the economy. Uh, I, I think that that's obviously part of the reason, but I, uh, I was at the uh, pregame for the basketball game last night and talked to a lot of legislators. And, uh, I think my relationship's pretty good with them. All right, uh, Blake Jones, Idaho Ed News. Morning, Governor. Um, you know, my question is regarding all-day kindergarten. So there are a few competing proposals to fund all-day kindergarten out in the legislature right now, though none of them line up directly with your proposal from the State of the State address. 
I'm curious if a different proposal reaches your desk, would you consider signing it? Blake, I think uh, uh, there was a meeting in here that I was part of uh, yesterday afternoon. And uh, again, I spoke to some of the legislators last night. Uh, we're getting awful close to a pretty good consensus. Um, can I ask, what is that consensus? What consensus? It's a surprise. I, I think it's not, it's not quite finalized, but we're really down to some uh, details. Uh, and, you know, my, my, my big issue is, is I want these kids reading proficiently, and I know that kindergarten is a big part of it. Uh, but if we, I want to make sure there's resources there. So these kids that, you know, because it's still optional kindergarten. These kids that don't go to kindergarten, that the that the schools have adequate resources to help those kids get caught back up. And I'm we are having fruitful discussions with the legislature about that very issue. With, uh, with that consensus that you're nearing, um, still um, have all day kindergarten as an option for school districts, or oh, would it be of course they that option exists today. Now it's the funding for it. And, and, you know, we, we started uh, the fact that I proposed 47 million more for literacy on top of the other literacy money, that gets us there. Uh, there's a few districts, uh, and it, it differs what you hear about it, that just don't have the physical space uh, to have that many more kids there. And, but, you know, and I want the districts and I want the state to know uh, that we're committed to continuing that funding in there and I want to allow those great teachers, principals, superintendents, and school boards to have the flexibility to look at their kids and say, how do we get them reading proficiently at the third grade? And we know kindergarten is a huge part of that. Uh, but kindergarten is not the only tool uh, that some districts use. Thank you. All right, next up, uh, Scott McIntosh, Idaho Statesman. Morning, Governor. Morning, Scott. Thanks for uh, doing this. Um, I wanted to ask about the grocery tax um, situation, the grocery tax credit. The, the legislature has proposed, a, I guess what you'd call a paltry $20 increase to the credit uh, that would take effect two years from now. Um, and then, so that proposal kind of set off a louder call to repeal the grocery tax altogether. How much of a priority is fixing the grocery tax situation to you? And what would you like to see happen? Well, I've talked about it uh, a lot in the last uh, four or five years, but I always said you got to define what in the court, there's, there's food and then there's groceries and then what are groceries, uh, which is, which is a, problem that exists in in uh, quite a few of the states. And then once after you say what groceries are, what do you do about people who want to say, well, we want to be groceries. Right now, if you buy cold chicken, it uh, your example, if you buy hot chicken, it's not. And and there's a lot of other things that are encompassed in that. You know, you can talk to the retailers about it. Uh, you need to define what you're trying to exempt before you exempt it. And that's, and I've always said that, and I think that's part of the discussion about just the exemption about, uh, but, you know, if you've got a larger family, uh, you know, $120 uh, per family member, uh, uh, it's, it, it is significant. And 
but uh, we'll see. I, 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 that's kind of, I agree with you. I think that's kind of slowed down. Uh, I haven't, we haven't talked about it in leadership meetings for uh, a couple of weeks. So as a follow-up, so is that, that $120 level, is that something acceptable to you or is that, would you like to see more or I guess, you know, based on your answer, I can understand the frustration of a lot of people who would just throw up their hands and say, well, let's just get rid of the whole thing. This, this kind of nickel and diming is, is frustrating. Meanwhile, we're, we're, we're paying uh, taxes, sales taxes on, on our food. Uh, while legislators and the governor kind of dance around the, the issue and nickel and dime us. You Should we just about, get rid of it? You, you, you talked about food, and that's the difference. Uh, it's when you go to the grocery store, everything you buy there, uh, uh, is that exempt or is it just food? And, and that, that's what I've said from the get-go. You got to define what you're exempting because people say groceries and they just look at their grocery bill and say, take that... Uh, six uh, percent off versus the food items on uh, and that's that's something that is a little more sticky than just saying uh, take it off and then if you and then what's going to happen is if you do that and you take away the tax credit uh, there's going to be people who are paying income taxes now that weren't paying income taxes and you haven't heard from them yet so I it's it's not a simple task but, but if we could agree what food is and it didn't disrupt the budget too much. Uh, I think it's but every day that goes by, it, it gets a little more difficult unless our revenue continues to keep going up on a what looks like a consistent basis. Thank you. Uh, next up, Joe Paris, then Betsy Russell, then Kelsey Mosley Morris. Uh, Governor, it's been exactly almost exactly two years since you announced the first case of COVID in Idaho. Um, I'm curious, almost two years later, I think it's March 13th, how would you evaluate your handling of COVID? Would you change anything? I know the early, the early days of it was very interesting to me. There were a lot of us in your office. No one really knew what was going on. When you think back to that time and really over the last two years, uh, again, how would you evaluate what you did? And do you think you would have changed anything if you would have known, I guess, how things played out? Well, I don't. I don't think any governor would say they handled it perfectly because there were so many unknowns. It was, uh, I remember some of our very first meetings with my, my working group, my, my COVID uh, working group and, you know, Dr. Hahn, uh, Dr. Bridges saying, you know, and I have, I guess, a little bit of an advantage being an animal scientist and I know what viruses do. And they all said they're, they're going to, they're going to change. They're going to, they're going to mutate. That's what that's what viruses do. And so, you know, you try and implement the best practices. And then when it changes, the infection rate changes or the spread changes, uh, then you have to react to it. Uh, I, I am very proud that uh, uh, Governor Cox in Utah and I, we, we're the fastest recovering state union uh, uh, for since COVID, and and there were a lot of stressful meetings. There were a lot of stressful days. There were a lot of, you know, when the when all this federal money came in, we didn't have some of the systems in place, particularly the Department of Labor, to handle that. And we've since uh, we rectified it. And in fact, 
uh, some of the states that were shoveling money out are now having to pay that back and found out how much fraud there was. Uh, but it was uh, it was a stressful time. I, it, I I don't know whether those are dog years, those two years are dog years or what, but it it it's been a long old uh, a long old haul and and sure we do things different and and I know at the at federal level obviously uh, dependence upon uh, some of the supply chain, uh, uh, particularly in the medical supply chain. I hope that this country learned from that and we're careful that we don't get into a position to where we don't have some of the uh, critical medical needs we do in case there's another uh, similar type pandemic. Uh, modifying the question order a bit, just because Ryan Soupy from the Idaho Statesman has not asked one yet. So go ahead, Ryan. Thank you, Jimmy. Um, hello, Governor. Uh, a question for you about election uh, bills. Um, there's been a number of bills this session that would tighten election laws. Um, some of them make it more difficult to vote. Um, and those bills are based on claims of an election integrity problems in the past or the potential for problems in the future, um, whether that's the potential for ballot harvesting or the potential for ballot boxes being tampered with. Um, just hoping you could comment on that. Well, we, that's, the legislature passes election laws on a very frequent basis. Uh, we should make it easier for people to vote. Uh, and harder for people to there to be fraud there. That's the that's kind of my north star in election laws. Uh, you know, we have a system in Idaho to where there's an automatic recount if the election's close. You look at those automatic recounts that happen on a not frequent too frequent basis, and they're only off by one or two votes. That's and and we're talking about implementing some other audit procedures. That's a pretty darn good audit. When you do a, a recount that's supervised locally, a lot of times it's supervised by the Secretary of State's office. Uh, that's a pretty good indication of how our election laws. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to be vigilant in what we do to make sure that new technologies and new things happening that uh, are, are voting. Because the most important thing to me is that the people of Idaho have confidence when they cast their ballot, that it'll be accurately reflected in the results. All right, Betsy, you're up next. It's kind of a follow-up to Ryan's question. Um, many of the bills that are being considered, even some that have passed the House, are emergency bills designed to take effect immediately for the May primary election, changing the rules for that election, in some cases with little notice on things like what you have to show to vote at the polls, um, who can vote in which primary. Governor, what do you think of that approach of emergency bills making changes in the rules for an election right before a big election? Well, of course, all the bills this year have an emergency clause in them, and that's another but these issue. Are, this is a I, different I, emergency I, clause. This is effective immediately. Yeah, I know, I know where you're going, but I, I couldn't help but editorialize uh, because I do look at the... Uh, uh, my bill box is right behind me and I don't have any bills in it right now, but I, I do. As a matter of fact, the bill I signed yesterday had an emergency clause and they used to be a rarity and now they're a much more uh, frequent uh, 
accompaniment, the last section of the bill is the emergency clause. But I, I, it, it does concern me that you change the rules and that a whole bunch of the electorate would not be aware of that change. And I, I'm, we'll see what happens. I generally don't comment until I see the bills up here. Depends what happens on them, what gets amended. But uh, I, I, I am concerned about changing the rules and the, uh, you know, because those of us that everybody on this uh, virtual meeting, uh, they're going to know about it. But there's a whole lot of the people of Idaho uh, that are not going to be aware of it if they make a significant change. All right, Kelsey, you're up next. Uh, going back to the workforce housing program you mentioned, I saw a new a new version of that bill yesterday come through the house. Um, when I talked to leadership at the beginning of the session, it sounded like there wasn't a whole lot of optimism that that would pass the House. But how are you feeling about that program's chances of, of passing the House, given that it's using federal dollars, the ARPA dollars, to, to fund it? Well, I, I would advise the legislators to, to, when they go home on the weekend, to talk to people about what their biggest problem is. Uh, talk to employers, talk to talk to schools, talk to hospitals. Uh, uh, housing is, you know, we're victims of our own success. Uh, the economy in Idaho is, is, is white hot. That would be a pretty good description of it. And one of the, one of the symptoms of a white hot economy is uh, you've got more jobs and you've got houses and people. And almost every major employer I talk to talks about uh, the critical need, and that includes schools, hospitals, um, fill in the blank. And so uh, I, I hope springs eternal. I think, I, I assume that something's gonna happen, but simultaneously, we've got a significant increase in mortgage interest rates. And I check with uh, Idaho Housing Finance, who's gonna be the administrator of it, you know, we were hoping for a thousand units. Uh, uh, Gerald Hunter did sit back in the envelope calculating, and with the interest rates the way they are today, it might only be nine hundred. So, and I I wouldn't be surprised if it's even more because uh, when you try and you know this 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 funding package, which for this uh, for this package is to do gap financing between some federal dollars, traditional funding uh, to get. Uh, get that up there. Well, an increase in mortgage interest rates makes it even more problematic. And, uh, the, you know, back again to my goal, I want our kids to stay here. Well, it, you know, they might have to rent for the first few years, but they got to have rentals and they got to have houses. So. Looks like Scott uh, with the Idaho Statesman. Um. I know you've spoken before, Governor, about a uh, five-year outlook for, for budgeting, and I wanted to ask you about tax cuts. Um, I've had a series of tax cuts, which I know you're very happy about. Um, looking out five years and looking at the balance of our tax revenue, um, should we expect more income tax, corporate income tax cuts? Um, is that balance... Um, um, working out and and do we see a change or do we see a change in that balance of, of tax revenues going forward great question we I, I think I stated it in my state of the state we were forecasting 200 million dollars a year 
for the next five years with my whole package. That's the tax bill that's already law. Um, but, and that was with uh, my proposed budget of 8%, uh, 8.1. Uh, some of the spending that's out there, and, and it also depends upon what the tax revenue is, also depends upon mortgage interest rates. Uh, it depends upon a lot of things, but we, it was a, you know, it was a pretty good uh, uh, forecast. It wasn't too high in the sky and it wasn't too pessimistic, uh, but I am I am dedicated to maintaining that solvency for the next five years. Uh, $200 million in our budget isn't an overly uh, amount. Obviously paying down the debt means we don't have to make date, debt payments. Obviously filling up our rainy day fund gives us a little larger shock absorber, but we watch that all the time because my commitments to education are steadfast and that's where we spend half our money and I don't want to have anything disrupt that. But are there projections to say, you know, if we get it down to five and a half percent for our income tax or our corporate income tax, we'll still be able to generate X amount of revenue. Are there projections going on like that? And is there a goal an end goal here with, with our tax rates? Well, well uh, four years ago, when I was applying for this job, I talked about a 6% tax rate. So uh, that's, that's where, that's where we are. And I'm, I'm proud of it. And I'm glad we got there, but I, uh, you know, obviously have to do the math. Um, but uh, there's, there's always a, a, uh, Pretty good number of tax uh, tax bills that are out there that all have a negative impact. Uh, when these bills come from my bill basket here, the first thing I do is look at the fiscal note, and then call my staff and call the to make sure the fiscal note is accurate because uh, occasionally the fiscal notes aren't accurate. Thank you. Uh, I hope your bill basket is decorated uh, <laughs> like uh, we always had in elementary school. Anyway, uh, Kristen McPeak, CBS2. Um, we've been getting a lot of questions into our newsroom about the demonstration happening on state grounds with the tents. Um, what are your thoughts on this week-long weeks long demonstration on the state grounds? Well, we are uh, a country and a state under the rule of law. And we have a federal uh, court, a Ninth Circuit Court ruling uh, that people have the right uh, to use tents as a, uh, as a freedom of speech to make their point about homelessness, fill in the blank. Uh, but they can't camp. And there's some other things they can't do there. Uh, as it was before, uh, I think it's got, you know, it, it will not uh, be there forever. Uh, you know, in April, sprinklers come on, and that's going to make it a little, uh, a little complicated for them. Uh, but we're going to honor their their right. Uh, it, I'm not excited about it, but uh, it makes me grumpy sometimes when I see it. Um, but it. Uh, it, it is their right uh, to make that protest, but uh, I think it will, I think we made some more, uh, did some more citations yesterday. Um, 
I, I don't know how long it's going to last. I, I, I would advocate to those activists over there that they may not be helping their case on some of the things uh, that they want to get done. Thank you. Uh, Melissa, Idaho reports. Governor, I wanted to ask you about a bill that the House recently passed that would uh, shield from public exemption providers of chemicals for um, executions. Um, is, is that something you support? If so, uh, are you worried about potential litigation for the state and um, the state's ability to carry out these executions in the first place? One thing I will always guarantee, there will always be litigation on capital cases. And so you factor that into uh, to, uh, capital cases that there's gonna be litigation. Yes, if that becomes law, there will be litigation. Uh, but we, that law was, uh, and I, I, I know the generalities of it. I didn't see the uh, specifics of it uh, when uh, Chairman Cheney uh, introduced it, but. I, I know basically what's in it, but uh, no, there there will be litigation. There always is on a capital case, which you know that's uh, those are things. Those are very um, significant and somber uh, laws, and you know the court system will weigh in. I'm certain, but this this law is modeled after a lot of other states that have this kind of of. Uh, the need for this kind of legislation has arrived. But as it's one of the most somber things that a government does, using taxpayer dollars to take a person's life, why wouldn't we want as much transparency in that process as possible? Well, because you won't be able to take a person's life if, uh, uh, if, if you don't have uh, the the means to do it. So you either have capital punishment or you don't have capital punishment. It, 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 the the shield law is just one of the uh, one of the necessary uh, pieces of legislation to have capital punishment. So is your commitment to capital punishment a higher priority than the commitment to transparency in this serious uh, task that the government does? I, I mean, anytime we do any kind of a public records law. For me, it's got a hurdle, uh, maybe not quite as high as yours, uh, but for me, it's, it has a hurdle. Uh, uh, and, but in this particular case, uh, the, some of the activists that are against capital punishment are using that as a way to stop capital punishment. They wanna stop capital punishment, uh, uh, run a law to stop capital punishment. Don't go through the back door and use it by um, harassing uh, the people, and we we want to make sure that the product is a uh, is an efficacious uh, uh, as 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 safe as possible for that kind of a product that is not put together in a back room somewhere. Thank you, Governor. Uh, building off of Melissa's question, since you mentioned the means of execution, uh, would you support, I, I know there's not a bill to do this at the moment, but would you support bringing back uh, the firing squad or authorizing some other uh, form of, uh, you know, uh, execution? No, uh, I, I, 
I'd have to know what the circumstances are, but uh, firing squad, you got to realize who's on the other end of the rifle and what it, what it means to them. So that's, uh, I, I, I think society, uh, obviously there are a lot of people that have uh, significant issues with uh, capital punishment, and, uh, but society has determined that uh, the lethal injection with the right compounds is what's the most humane way to, uh, in a dignified manner to fulfill uh, the legal requirement of capital punishment. All right, Joe Paris, KTBB. Uh, Governor, I want to go back to the election bills that Betsy Russell mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, specifically, would you have hesitations about signing these bills? And would you maybe have a qualifier that you would only sign these bills if they did not have an emergency clause? Well, I don't think they're very close yet. I'll, we'll look at them when they get closer. But uh, like I said, the, the emergency clause uh, changes rules awful close to the uh, time of implementation. Uh, and of course, it depends upon where they are in the process. But it, it uh, and in fact, uh, again, if we're going to talk about litigation, uh, if if you change rules, you know, within a few days of when something's going to happen, uh, you can bet that they'll somebody will litigate on it also. Couldn't the whole situation be avoided, though, if you set the expectation for lawmakers that it would be unfair to voters if they passed this with an emergency clause? Well, I think you're all making this case right now. All right, uh, Scott, go ahead. I wanted to follow up on the on some of the COVID questions that have already been asked, but I want to ask specifically, what lessons did you learn from um, from our our reaction to the pandemic, and specifically your your actions to the pandemic. What lessons did you learn? What would you do differently? Um, what would you do the same? And do you think do you think we're prepared for the next um, the next pandemic? If 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 all of a sudden there's another variant that is uh, just as deadly or just or or, or more deadly. Are we prepared? Do we have the systems in place to, to respond? Well, in a lot of ways, we're way better off. I mean, we didn't, uh, when the pandemic started, we didn't have uh, wastewater analysis. You know, we do a lot of testing, spend a lot of money on testing. Uh, I was, I was uh, visiting with a friend of mine last night and uh, he'd just seen the most recent uh, statistics from the Boise, uh, the city's, water system and uh, you know the the viral loading in the waste stream is way down we didn't even have that before and 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 then the other thing we don't we didn't have before is our ability at the state lab to determine what the variant was we were sending those samples out of state so we've ramped up uh, what we can do at the state we've ramped up what we're doing for monitoring uh, people's awareness uh, that's those are all the good things. The bad things is some of the um, basically indications that it wasn't real. Uh, you know, that's that's the other side of it. But from a, a practical matter of handling a, a viral uh, uh, pandemic, uh, 
I talked a little bit about supply chain, what's available, uh, how much inventory we have of PPE. I, I remember when this started two years ago, uh, one of the major hospitals, they were they were talking about a three or four day supply of masks that they needed. We didn't have any, there were no masks. And, uh, uh, you know, testing was a problem. So those things are all, all different than they were before. Um, and I know there's there'll be a lot of books written about how to best prepare for the next one and what the next one will look at. You know, what's the infection rate? Uh, you know, there's still uh, uh, data coming out about uh, the efficacy of masks, about aerial versus uh, aerosol versus droplets versus uh, and but we as a society, uh, we should learn from them. And, and specifically, would you have would you have done the stay at home orders, knowing what you know now, stay at home orders, business shutdowns? Um, would you have done those again? Well, initially, uh, you know, the President Trump uh, declared a disaster. Everybody declared a disaster. The schools, and and we learn more and more about schools. Schools were shut by, down by the local school boards. They weren't shut down by us. State board after all the schools shut down says, and then we determined how we were going to compensate the school boards. Uh, but those, a lot of those decisions were made by school boards. A lot of the decisions were made by individuals. They were scared. They didn't know, uh, rightfully so, they didn't know what the uh, ramifications were. You know, our neighbors in Washington, uh, the fatality rate among the older population was just ravaging. Uh, long-term care facilities and hospitals over in the state of Washington. So a lot of what happened, the pandemic was a result of basically the public either being scared or be the unknown. And so having good science is always helpful, but uh, you know, one of the most interesting things, uh, I, I'm, I'm not all that excited about our low vaccination rate, but our older population that are vaccinated and boosted uh, we actually have one of the highest populations, and those are the ones that are most susceptible. Thank you. And Governor, uh, as we have about, I think, nine minutes left uh, to go here, uh, the pandemic has obviously touched uh, just about every facet of life, uh, you know, here in Idaho and across the world. But um, as you're coming to the end of your first term, uh, what other kind of profound changes have you seen around the state over the past four years? Well, what what was very uh, rewarding to me was how uh, businesses, large and small, and families uh, powered through the pandemic. Uh, you know, businesses made different products than they were making before when people uh, were going out. The small, uh, you know, restaurants, uh, you know, takeout was not a big deal, and it's. And now, even with the in the areas where there's hardly any, that's that was a new thing. Uh, there, there was so much modification of what uh, people did, and it it it, it uh, re-energizes my faith in the free market system. That uh, when challenging things happen, uh, they will adopt. Uh, in our healthcare side. The implementation of telehealth, which is going to be with us for a long time. I actually had a, a uh, visit with a, a major 
um, hospital company about what we're going to do about telehealth going forward because we know telehealth works. What we're doing with telehealth for behavioral health, uh, which was just getting started, and now uh, our investments in behavioral health, our investments in telehealth, uh, you know, we're going to get more broadband capacity out. That's going to make a difference in the lives of Idahoans and also the affordability of, of uh, health care. If, if you can maybe see your own family physician once, I had a, uh, yesterday I had uh, the ICOM students in here in the office and, uh, you know, and, and get that initial uh, diagnosis, and make sure they know everything and they have the data on you. We can significantly lower the cost of healthcare. Those are all things that uh, that the pandemic kind of put on steroids and and made better for for all Idahoans. But there are just a lot of things. Uh, you know, we're we're getting our uh, we've got a solid plan for state and local roads uh, to get them fixed. We Idaho and uh, I know Politico did a story about uh, our learning loss in Idaho was one of the least of all the states. Now I know we had learning loss and we continue to work on that. But what we're doing in education, uh, what we're doing in literacy, what we're doing on teacher pay, what we're doing on teacher retention, uh, those are all great things for the future of Idaho. Uh, looks like Audrey Dutton, Idaho Capital Sun. Thank you so much. Uh, I am curious, pre-pandemic, um, you know, you made a point to uh, talk about Idaho being, making Idaho least regulated state. And you've, and you've talked a lot about uh, Idaho being least regulated state. Uh, and I'm increasingly hearing, and we've heard from people who are, excuse me, who are, uh, <laughs> who are moving to Idaho because of that. Uh, and some of them, uh, don't want to have regulations guiding their lives. And so that's why they come here. Um, I'm wondering what you think about kind of if that's an unintended consequence of not having regulation um, and your thoughts on that. Well, I go to the last question. I think a lot of the growth in Idaho is because uh, people were able to change. I don't know of any regulations uh, that we have uh, either eliminated or simplified that's made a bit of difference in the safety of the people of Idaho. Uh, you know, there's so many of them uh, fit into that category. And in fact, a lot of individuals and a lot of small businesses will tell you it's easier to comply because they're easier to read. We Government left unchecked will just continue to pile one rule on top of another rule on top of another rule. Large companies that have lawyers and compliance officers that's okay for them, but the small entrepreneurial companies that make up uh, really the engine that drives the state of Idaho, that simplification and, and making it to where they can understand it. One of the things we did is each agency has one person uh, that's the center point for regulation. So if you call transportation or water resources or health and welfare, and you've got conflicting rules, there's one person there to answer. That's all part of the whole thing. And I think that's part of the reason our economy's doing uh, so well here in Idaho. Even, uh, even my, uh, you know, I serve as chairman of the Western governors, even my democratic Western governors are looking at what we're doing here and want to implement their states. 
All right, uh, have four minutes left. Uh, Kelsey, are you gonna ask the governor about his average Wordle score? It's probably better than mine. <laughs> Feel free to weigh in on that, Governor. If I knew what it was, I would. <laughs> I had a feeling. <laughs> um, I was just curious. There was a bill yesterday introduced by Representative Moyle about uh, WAMI students being required to pay back their tuition subsidy if they don't practice in Idaho um, for four years professionally full time. Um, and I just wondered if you uh, supported that proposal, if you have any concerns about it, um, if, or if you think that would help with our, our physician shortage in Idaho. I, I, I haven't seen it. I'll, uh, okay. we'll, we'll, we'll look at it. We, you know, our, what we're doing with, uh, in medical education from nurses to doctors to, uh, we got a lot of good things going on. We, we can't take our foot off the ass when this when we get to the end of particularly federal funding, uh, we, we're really gonna know where our weak links are. And I'm afraid, well, I know it's gonna be in rural Idaho. That's why telehealth is so important. We need every single doctor we can get, every uh, nurse practitioner, uh, every physician's assistant, and, and then tie them together with, with telehealth uh, to increase capacity. So anything that increases capacity, I'm all, I'm all in on. And with two minutes left, looks like uh, probably last question goes to Betsy. Thanks, Jimmy. Governor, throughout this year's legislative session, we have seen a theme of opposition to local control and a preference for the state determining the rules on everything from whether local school districts should drug test substitute teachers pre-employment to when um, a a park or a bridge can be renamed, how local governments do their spending and their taxing, even mask rules. What do you think about the legislature's preference for state level control versus local government control here in Idaho on an array of issues that we've seen this year? Well, one of the biggest problems we have in Idaho right now is growth, coping with growth. And it is awful hard. And I, I, I'm unabashed when I go out throughout Idaho that the solution's not here in Boise. The solution's your county commissioner, your planning and zoning, your city council, uh, your local school board, uh, how you cope with growth. And we need to be very careful that if everybody feels the same way I do is one of our biggest problems going forward is gonna be growth, that we don't hamstring those communities and how they handle that. So would you oppose any of the bills that have passed this year, veto them on that basis? I do, uh, each one of them will have to stand on its own, but I, uh, that's, that's my overarching message is if, if, if we, Idaho collectively, are concerned about growth, uh, who better to handle it than somebody at the local level? You mentioned concerns last year about House Bill 389 and making fixes to it. Local governments were concerned about exactly that, how they were able to cope with growth. Um, and those fixes have not been proposed. What do you think should be done in that area? No, I think there's some. Uh, I think there's, matter of fact, I think it may be sign one. It wasn't a very major one. Uh, and we know that there's a circuit breaker bill out there. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I remind the legislature about is, uh, you know, a permit for a new business 
is determined by the city or the county. And if they don't get economically rewarded for that uh, activity, then they have one less incentive uh, to permit a new business. And they need, we need to continue to think about that. I understand part of the concept of 389 was the fact that that growth on top of growth on top of growth uh, basically increases the taxes for not only the new uh, uh, people, but the old people or the, the, the existing residents. Uh, but it's different in almost every taxing district in every community. And that's why a resolution to a problem in one area sometimes keeps it, starts a bigger problem there. I know there's still some other bills coming to uh, to address uh, 389, and I look forward to seeing them in my little bill basket. Thank you. Thank you, Governor, for your time. As always, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us every year uh, and answer our questions about the legislature. Um, you know, you're free to go. We got you out of here just a, a minute you know, later than we promised, but uh, I guess we owe you probably triple or quadruple bacon next year. Yeah. All right. I'll pick up some bacon when I get out of here. Sounds good. I'll, uh, I'll make a delivery to Marissa. All right. For more information on pending legislation, visit the Idaho Reports blog at idahoptv.org or watch our show on Friday at 8 p.m. on Idaho Public Television. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.